Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 12 through verse 13. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through verse 21, actually. Romans 12, 5, 12 through 21. Amen. Reading out of the New King James Version of the Scripture, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free Greek gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the, through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as, though, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to preach to you or teach to you today on the subject, Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we're asking you to touch and anoint your word today. Open, Lord, the eyes of our understanding. Lord, just right now, let there be a sense of the holy. Uh, Lord, come down upon the speaker and the hearers today. Lord, we need to hear from you every time that we're together. We need to hear your voice. We need to hear what you would say to us. And we're asking you to do that today. Make it real and make it personal. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. A name that you may remember from your school days is that of John Milton. John Milton is most famous for writing two poems, uh, paradise, two epic poems, Paradise Lost, and then he also wrote, wrote Paradise Regained. In 1664, he published Paradise Lost. In his personal life, he had uh, had some highs and some lows. John Milton kind of started out a little bit as a provocateur. He was probably what you might say the 17th century's version of a Sean Hannity or a Rush Limbaugh. 
He was very critical of the monarchy, particularly of the monarchy of Charles I. He would write pamphlets and put out literature that was critical of the monarchy. It's a wonder that he was not taken out in that day. But his chance finally came because in 1649, Oliver Cromwell deposed not only Charles I as king, but deposed of the monarchy in England. And for 11 years, they existed under what was called the period of the Commonwealth of England. And this John Milton, who had been a renegade and an outcast because of his views, was now celebrated. He was now, in the new government, he was a statesman. In fact, he was kind of the spokesman for the whole movement. Uh, If you can imagine whenever the, the president's spokesperson, White House spokesperson, comes out and speaks to the media, that was kind of his role. Of course, back then you didn't have television and those kinds of things. It was all done through, mostly done through literature. But he was that person. He was kind of the point man of the new government. In the midst of that, in 1652, he went totally, completely blind. And then in 1660, the commonwealth itself was overthrown and the monarchy restored uh, to England. And so now he was once again on, on the outs and to add insult to injury, he was totally blind. And it was in uh, 1671, or 1664 rather, that he published this epic poem, Paradise Lost, which is a, is a tale about the war in heaven, Satan being kicked out of heaven, and then Adam and Eve in the garden, and their sin in the garden. And a lot of people think that he put a lot of his own emotions in there. In fact, a lot of people feel that there was a lot of analogy to the political atmosphere in England at the time. So he was writing really from his own angst, his own uh, defeat, when he talked about paradise lost. He, in the sense of, of his own country, he had known and tasted what it was like to have the government he wanted only to lose it. But thankfully, John Milton did not leave people in the depths of despair. In 1671, he published a follow-up, a sequel poem to Paradise Lost. He published Paradise Regained. Well, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 is God's version of Paradise Lost in Adam and paradise regained in Christ. It has been said that uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, this passage of scripture is one of the, the very most important theological statements in the Bible. Some have said it, it has had more impact on Christian theology than perhaps any other portion of scripture. Commentators through the years not been sure what to do with it, Some say it is an epilogue to what has come in the first five chapters of Romans. It's a closing thought to the first five chapters of Romans. Others say, no, it's a prologue that introduces uh, the next six uh, chapters of, and seven chapters of Romans. Uh, I don't think it's an epilogue or a prologue. What I think it is, is a hinge. It's the hinge that the door turns on. It's a bridge to get you 
from the first five chapters to the last uh, four chapters, uh, going into chapter five to the last seven chapters. And that is that in the first uh, chapters, uh, there is uh, the introduction that mankind lives up under the wrath of God. Not just individuals, not just one or two individuals that are really bad, but the whole of humanity resides under the wrath of God. And then when you get past chapter 5, it begins to talk about what God has done about that. About how we have been justified. And a lot of times people don't maybe understand those theological terms. But when you get saved, there are certain things that happen that are all in that one act of salvation, but there are different parts to salvation. One of the things that happens is you're regenerated. You become a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. The old man has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But another thing that happens is called justification. And that part of our salvation, justification, that part is not about that we've laid down the old and picked up the new. That's not what that part of salvation is about. Justification is not about the fact that I was unholy and now I'm holy. It's not about the fact that I was an old creature and now I'm a new creature. Justification is the legal part of what God does for us. And that is that we've changed categories. We were under the category of wrath. And God has made a legal decree based on what Jesus has done that we've been moved over to the category of righteous, of justified. That's not something that we earned. It's not something we do. Now listen, does God make us a new creature? Yes, but that, that, is, a different, that is a different part of what happens in salvation. Does God uh, wash our sins away and make us holy and clean? Yes, He does. Absolutely. He makes us holy and clean. But this part of salvation, justification, is about our standing before God. That we are justified. In other words, let me say it this way. We don't, we're not saved because we quit sinning. Okay? That's not what saves us. What saves us is the fact that we were guilty and God has moved us over to the category of justified. Now, because we're also cleansed, regenerated, sanctified, all of that by the blood of Jesus, because all of that happens, those other things happen. A change of our wants, our desires, all that happens. But the act of justification is changing into a different category before God. How many is glad you're in a different category after Calvary than you were before Calvary? Aren't you glad you're not under the category of condemned anymore. And that's why the, the Bible says there's now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Why? Because we've been moved out of the category of condemned. Now there are people that take that and they say, that means that if you're really right with God, your conscience doesn't ever bother you. If there's no condemnation, you know you're right with God. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about I was in the category of condemned and now I'm in the category 
of justified. I've been made right with God. Not on the basis of my change. Not even on the basis of my repentance, the basis of what Jesus did at Calvary. Now the only access I have to what he did at Calvary is through repentance. Repentance is important, but my repentance doesn't earn it. My repentance simply accesses it, right? Like like a water hose accesses the spigot and gets the water to the tree. It's that repentance is necessary for me to access, but my repentance is not what causes me to be saved. I'm saved by faith, but I'm saved by, I'm saved through faith, I'm sorry, by grace. It's the grace of God that does it, and our faith is the conduit. This hinge actually represents two, uh, there's a fancy word for it called aeons, but really all it means is two ages. This hinge is the difference between two ages. It's the difference between two testaments. It's the difference between two covenants. It's the difference between the two Adams, the first Adam, Adam, and the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. It's the difference between two humanities. In your flesh, you and I are the descendants of Adam in our flesh. But we are, Christians are a new humanity. We're a different species than people that don't know the Lord. We are a recreated humanity. We have been born again. We have been regenerated. And this scripture outlines all of that. Now, I read it to you. And this scripture is also, this passage is uh, widely known as being extremely confusing. (laughs) So we're going to break it down. In fact, Verses 13 through 17 are what is called uh, a parenthetical statement. There's a fancy word that theologians use, uh, theologians use anakalothon, and, it, and what it means is beside the column. It means a thought that is kind of uh, off the point. People think, uh, commentators, commentators think Paul was chasing a rabbit here. And I reminded of a, of, a, of a preacher that had a big impact on me because he was in a different denomination, but he was the first state overseer I ever worked under. And he had a unique way of preaching, and people loved him. His name was Alan Davis, but here's the way he preached. He'd read his scripture, and then he would start off telling a story. And while he was telling that story, that story would remind him of another story. And so he would get to telling this second story, and in the middle of this second story, that second story would remind him of another story, so he'd get to telling this third story. (laughs) And that third story would remind him of yet another, so he'd get to telling the fourth story. And you think, how in the world is he going to get back there? But he wraps up story number four, He gets back to story number three. He wraps up story number three. 
he gets back to story number two and he wraps up story number two and he ends back up with his original story, story number one, and he makes his point and he would give his altar call and the altars would flood. And he was almost kind of like a little bit like a Jerry Clower in his preaching. He was comical, but the pot, when he finally got you back, the point he was making was so powerful and he so opened your heart to that point that it was very, very powerful. Well, that's kind of what Paul does here. Paul makes a statement and, and really in mid-sentence, he goes off and explains all the background to what he's talking about and comes back and makes his original point. So verse 18 actually completes verse 12. So if you read those two together, they really give you the, a summary of what's being said. Verse 12 and verse 18 together read this way. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. And even when you study writing, they will tell you your first sentence and your last sentence ought to summarize. The first sentence introduces it, the last sentence summarizes it. Well, that's really what Paul does here, but he goes off on a tangent in verses 3 through 17 that really give us the theological background and basis of what he's saying. So let's take it verse by verse, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. There's been theories through history of how we sinned in Adam. Uh, Pelagius was a, was a monk and a deacon in the, uh, in the church, I think in, in the 300s. And he, he came out with a theory, he said, we all sin in Adam because like Adam, we've all sinned. But Adam's sin didn't affect us. Adam was immortal, he would have died anyway, and Adam had to pay for his sins and we pay for our sins, but Adam's sin didn't affect us in any way. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Romans 5, 12 through 21 teaches it says that some way, somehow, when Adam sinned, the whole of humanity was then sold under sin. We were all born sinners. A baby that does not even have the ability to sin is still a sinner because he was born fallen. That's what happened in Adam. And then there are others that say, well, what we inherited from Adam is just the tendency to sin. We were not guilty because Adam sinned, but we, we like Adam, uh, inherited a slant, a proclivity to sin. Well, that's called the Adamic nature, and we believe that, but it doesn't go far enough. We did inherit that tendency to sin. How many will me realize that without the Lord, it, there would probably be no limits to what you could have been or could have done? You know, that hurt my feelings when I discovered that, right? Because I want to think of myself as a pretty good uh, person. 
But through my life, I've had enough faults and failures to see that without the Lord, there's no telling what I could have been, what I could have done, right? Because we have a tendency to sin and we inherited that tendency, but we not only inherited that tendency, we inherited from Adam that we were born sinners. That there is original sin. And that from that original sin, sickness and death entered into the human equation. In fact, it entered into the world. Adam, if he had not sinned, would not have died. And the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. He died spiritually. He began to die physically. And he and Eve, even though they lived a long time, died. And every human being since then, with the, with the exception of the two that the Lord translated into heaven, every, two, every individual since then has died. And we don't die because of our own sin. You don't, if you get sick, you may or may not have sinned, but chances are you're not sick because you sinned. You're sick because Adam sinned. That's where sickness entered the world. That's where decay entered the world. And if you die, you don't pass by the grave and say, I wonder what they did wrong. The Lord surely wouldn't have struck them dead if they hadn't have sinned. They must have done something No, people die. Why? Because Adam sinned. And Adam was the federal head of the human race. He was our representative, legal, federal head of the human race. So I believe that the desire to get get rid of judgment on sin and get rid of sin itself is behind what we term as secular humanism, and it's behind the theory of evolution. In my view, secular humanism wants to justify Adam. So, well, Adam was a pretty good, old, you know, Adam was a pretty good old boy, but there were other mitigating factors. Secular humanism would say that all of us are born good, and if we do something bad. It's mama's fault. Well, why did mama do something bad? Well, it was her daddy's fault. Well, why did her daddy do something bad? Because it was granddaddy's fault. That's, that, there, there's a whole industry out there of psychiatry and psychology and counseling that's grown up around the blame game of blaming somebody else for what we do wrong. So secular humanism wants to say, Humans are good, they only do bad because there's poverty or ignorance. Uh, There's a lot of people look at terrorists and say, well, those poor terrorists, they just don't know any better, they don't have any better, and they don't realize that the people that that flew uh, planes into buildings were highly educated and and wealthy individuals. And you give give, uh, somebody better education, what you got is a better educated sinner. You give somebody more affluence and what you got is a more affluent sinner, <laughs> right? So where the Bible says all sin, this is not where Paul said all have sin. That's true. All have sin. But when it says all sin, it meant in Adam we all sin. Evolution then says, well, the way to get rid of sin is to get rid of Adam. 
If we, if we can believe that some cells got together in some primordial slime and somehow through billions of years that evolved until it became a, a single cell, you know, a, a, amoeba or something, and after a while that grew into a fish, and after a, a while that fish crawled up on land and got legs and it became a monkey and the monkey climbed up a tree and fell down and broke his tail off and started walking up right and we called him Teddy. I mean, it's, you're right, right? I mean, I don't have enough faith to believe that, do you? I mean, that's the craziest thing. This watch that I've got on my hand here, if I took all, if I took all of the metal that's in this watch, it doesn't matter if I had a trillion, a billion, trillion years. Throwing that watch up and down a billion, trillion times, it'll never make a watch. Right? When I look at this watch, I know there was an intelligent design behind that, and an intelligent design indicates there's an intelligent designer. So when I look at creation, I have to come to the conclusion that there is an intelligent design to creation and must be an intelligent designer. But evolution gets rid of Adam. Therefore, it gets rid of sin. It gets rid of accountability. And listen, Darwin, Charles Darwin, when he uh, came up with the theory of evolution, he was very aware of the theological implications that came along with that. Our whole theology of salvation depends on creation. It not only depends on the fact that God created everything, it depends on the fact that there were those original parents in the garden. That there was an Adam and an Eve from which every race, every person descended. And our whole theology depends on that. Because as we will see, the fact that we all sinned in one progenitor, the fact that we all sin means we can all be redeemed by one. Right? If Jesus' act can justify everybody, it's because Adam's act condemned everybody. Because he's the last Adam. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. God did not hold people to a standard of which they were unaware. It's always been wrong to murder, but God didn't have that written down until the Ten Commandments. It's always been wrong to commit adultery, but God didn't have that written down. Sin is a transgression of God's holy law. So he says, when there wasn't a law, People couldn't understand that they were breaking God's law. They didn't have it. However, God's judgment on humanity during the time of Noah lets us know that there's some things you ought to know about just naturally. And this is what C.S. Lewis called natural law. And that is that human beings, even in a fallen state, Human beings that have never even heard the law of God have some inkling that some things are just wrong. This is the most revealing 
statement of atheists, of agnostics, of sinners, of those that are rebelling against God, those that are living contrary to God's word. This is their most revealing statement. They say, well, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm not hurting anybody. As long as I don't hurt anybody. Well, why is it wrong to hurt anybody? What's wrong with that? In fact, if you really believe in evolution, which is the survival of the fittest, it's not only not wrong to hurt somebody, it is actually for the benefit of the species to hurt those that are low, those that are um, maim, uh, maimed and lame and, and blind and withered and those that cannot protect themselves. If we really went by what, we, what they say evolution is, we would actually be doing the human race a favor to weed all those people out. And guess what? That's exactly what Hitler tried to do. But we know as humans, the rankest sinner out there still knows in their heart of hearts it's wrong to hurt other people. Because there's this natural law. But even though people didn't have the law of God and they couldn't break the law of God because God had not revealed his law and God's standard of judging them would have been them breaking his law, Verse 14 says, even though they didn't sin themselves, they still died. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. They didn't sin the way Adam did. Adam broke a command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't have the commands of God. And even though they didn't break the revealed commands of God, they still died. Why? They didn't die because they had sinned. They died because Adam sinned. He says, Adam then is a type of him that was to come. He's talking about Jesus. So sickness and death are not a result of individual sin, but of Adam's sin. But here's the good news, okay? I'm going to read verses 15 through 19, and I want you to, I want you to drink them in now. I want you to listen to them closely because the language is not easy, but I want you to hear what it's saying. I'm not going to break down each individual scripture here because it is a, it's a stream of consciousness. It's a, it's a flow of thought, and I want you to get his thoughts. The free gift, that is salvation, is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, Adam's sin, many died, here's something better. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, that's capital man, Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The man Jesus Christ abounded to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For judgment which came from one offense, one sin, one act, resulted in the condemnation of all humanity. But the free gift which came from many offenses, Jesus took the sin of the whole world. He didn't just pay for Adam's sin, he paid for everybody's sin. And, and listen to me, and this is not a blank check to sin. 
But listen to me, any sin that you've committed or have committed, Jesus already paid for before you were ever born. Right? All of our sins were in the future. So he paid for Adam's sin. He paid for the sins of those people before the flood. He paid for all of the sins of humanity for the 4,000 years leading up to him coming. He paid for all of the sins of all of those that would ever be born in Adam's race. So Adam sinned one sin. And it got us into this mess. And Jesus not only took Adam's sin, he took everybody's sin. Amen? So from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's sin, one man's offense, death Offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. He is contrasting Adam's disobedience with Jesus' obedience. And he said, just as in Adam every human being lost out with God, Now in Jesus Christ, every human being can be right with God. The one act of Adam and the one act of Jesus. Second Corinthians tells us who Jesus is. First Corinthians 15, 45. Uh, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is the last Adam. Now, I, I have heard people speculate, and they said, you know, Jesus, Jesus could have come, uh, you know, as a Caucasian. He could have come as an American. He, he could have come as uh, a black person, or he, he could have come as an as a oriental person. No, he had to come as a Jew. He had to come as the descendant of David. He had to come to be the king of the Jews. He couldn't have just, he, he came the way he was supposed to come. And I've heard, I, there, there is a blasphemous uh, little piece of art, so-called out there, that has a woman hanging on a cross named Christina. I believe Jesus had to come as a male. Because Adam, as the male, was first created, and it was not. I know, ladies, that Eve has gotten the bad press for 6,000 years. It was not Eve's sin that got us into this mess. It was Adam's sin. Now, Eve didn't help. <laughs> but I believe if Eve had sinned, Eve might have bore judgment, but Adam's the one who was the progenitor of the human race. Therefore, Jesus had to come and be the federal head of the new human race. 
There's a whole new race of, of people living on earth and it's called Christians. We're a new humanity. I want you to look at the contrast, the comparison and the contrast, and I'm almost through, so don't worry about the time. Uh, I'm hungry too, but listen to me. The comparison and the contrast of the first Adam and the last Adam. In the first Adam, paradise was lost. In the last Adam, paradise was regained. The first Adam was created from the dust of the earth and formed by the hand of God from the dust of the earth. The last Adam was formed by the Holy Spirit in a womb of a virgin. The first Adam was put in a garden called Eden. The second Adam, the last Adam, went to a garden called Gethsemane and prayed all night long. The first Adam had to deal with a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where he sinned and, and, and got the whole human race in trouble. The last Adam had to deal with a tree. It was called Mount Calvary and the old rugged cross, and there his shed blood paid the price for the sin of every, of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The first Adam had to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. The last Adam went into the Garden of Gethsemane and under pressure prayed and sweated till his sweat became as great drops of blood. The first Adam, when he sinned, the, the earth that knew no thorns and thistles, there, there came thorns on the rose bush. Thorns began to grow up out of the earth. And the last Adam had a crown of thorns shoved down on his head. The first Adam, when he sinned, the very ground itself was cursed. And the last Adam, when he died, was planted in that ground behind a heavy stone. The first Adam said, was told, from dust you came and from dust you shall return. But the last Adam was told, I will not suffer my Holy One to see corruption. In Adam all die. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Our original sin was not simply by the act of Adam. It was because we were in Adam. You look at that mighty oak tree out there, and you look at the acorn laying at its feet. When you pick up that acorn, there's an oak tree in that acorn. Right? And all of us that are the descendants of Adam, we were in Adam when he sinned. You see what I'm saying? We were in Adam and we sinned in Adam. Adam sinned and it affected all of us. But here's the thing. I'm not just saved by what Jesus did. I'm saved by, by what Jesus did, but I'm saved because I'm in Jesus. I'm in him and he's in me. It's like sticking a sponge into the water. Is the water in the sponge or is the sponge in the water? Both. I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. That's why I'm secure. That's why my prayers get answered. 
That's why I'm going to heaven. I'm not going because I'm standing under my own righteousness for my righteousnesses just like those in the time of Isaiah and the children of Israel or the people of Israel. My righteousnesses are as filthy rags. On my very best day, I'm not good enough. But I am in Christ. Right? That's why Paul says later on, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Right? Isn't that wonderful news? Moreover, verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law came and it exposed sin. I want you to understand what God did in the old covenant with the law of God. God did not fail in what he wanted to accomplish with the law. Calvary was not plan B. God didn't say, okay, I'm going to give them my law, and if they can live up to it, great. But they, I'm going to give them a chance, and then he looks down and said, boy, they just ain't able to do it, so I reckon I'll send Jesus, plan B. No, Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. The law entered not to take sin away, but to expose sin for what it was. To make us aware of our lost and sinful condition. That's why these preachers out here that think somehow it hurts people's self-esteem to let them know they're sinners, they don't know the gospel. There are preachers that have bought into humanism. One of the greatest things we can do for lost people is to make them aware of the fact that they're lost. We don't preach against sin because we're mad we don't get to do it. We don't preach against sin because we're trying to condemn or or judge or put people down or because we're hatred. We certainly don't preach against sin because we're happy somebody's going to hell. We preach against sin because we preach God's standard to let people know that they're going to be judged by that standard. But there is a way for them to be made right with God even though they've fallen woefully below His standard. So where the law entered, the offense abounded. Sin abounded. But listen to this. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That word abounded there, there, there there's a word there that means super abound. Like overflowing. Paul was not content to use the word that meant superabound. He had to take the word hyper and put it in front of the word superabound. He says where there's sin and sin abounds, God's grace does hyper superabound. He had to give it the highest superlative he could think of. That it's an overflowing grace. It's an overcoming grace. It's it's an unstoppable force of grace. It's a flood of grace. Where sin abound, God's grace did much more abound. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are 
two theological extremes when it comes to salvation that we have to deal with in our day. There is one that is represented in five-point Calvinism. Now, there's a lot of people that you might think are Calvinists, but they're, they're actually three-point Calvinists or four-point Calvinists. They're not five-point Calvinists. But five-point Calvinism has, a, has a, um, a view of salvation and atonement that says this. Jesus did not die for everybody. He only died for the elect. He only died for the chosen. They call it limited atonement. And how many have ever dealt with people that that were sinners and knew they were sinners and cried and wept and wanted to be saved. But they said, I just don't know if I'm one of those chosen. I just don't know if I'm one of the elect. There are people that have served God for years that because of their theology will say, well, I hope I'm going to be right. I hope I'm going to be saved. I hope I'm one of them. I like the answer, I'm a simple guy, I like the answer, the old country singer, governor of Louisiana, Jimmy Davis said. There are some people that say you cannot tell whether you're saved or whether all is well. They say you can only hope and trust that it is so, but I was there when it happened, so I guess I ought to know. I know when Jesus saved me. The very moment he forgave me, he took away my heavy burdens and he gave me peace within. Satan can't make me doubt and it's real and I'm going to shout it. I was there when it happened. So I guess I ought to know. Amen. I know that the Lord has saved me. In fact, there are churches who teach there's no need for you to witness. There's no need for you to send missionaries. There's, if, if they're elect, God's going to save them whether they hear the gospel or not. There are people that are so hyper-Calvinistic. And I'm going to tell you, you say, well, they must be Yankees. No. <laughs> you probably pass through by churches on a daily basis that teach that, and you just don't know they teach it. But there's another extreme, and it's called universalism. It says everybody is going to be saved whether they accept Jesus or not. Everybody's already saved. They just don't know it. In the end, it'll all land on its feet. Everybody's going to be saved. This is most typified most recently in a a, a preacher that was uh, very, very popular uh, in, in Christian circles named Rob Bale. And he wrote a book, Love Wins, and that book is all about, he has come to the conviction that it's universal salvation and everybody's going to be saved whether they want to or not. Many years ago, there was a Pentecostal preacher, graduated from Oral Roberts University, on TV, 
He was somewhat of a darling for a while of, of uh, television uh, ministry. But he came out about 20 years ago and came out with this belief. Everybody's saved. Everybody, you don't have to accept Jesus. You don't even have to hear about Jesus. All we're trying to do is just share the good news that everybody's saved. Well, this is not what the scripture teaches, obviously. Hell's enlarged itself, by the way. But there's a middle ground between these extremes. And I think that middle ground is the biblical ground. Paul said, just like Adam in Adam, everybody died. He said, so in Christ, everybody be made alive. I do not believe in universal salvation, but I do believe in universal atonement. What do I mean by those terms? I don't believe everybody will be saved, but I believe everybody can be saved. I believe it because when John was baptizing in Jordan and he saw Jesus walking on the shore, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the elect. It's not what he said, is it? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I believe it because Jesus said to Nicodemus, Whosoever believeth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everybody's not going to accept him. Everybody's not going to repent. But just as Adam's sin got us all under sin, Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary paved the way for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Who's going to be saved? Whoever will. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Aren't you glad what our last Adam did for us? Amen, amen, and amen. Would you stand and let's pray. Thank you for your uh, attention today. Father, in Jesus' name, oh Lord, we're praying that you would help us to spread the news, God, to the least and last and lost, that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, God, to regain what was lost in Adam. Lord, he not only gave us back what Adam lost, he gave us back and more. Because now we not only can walk with God, but we can experience your presence in our hearts and live eternally with you in heaven. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great day. Amen.